Good morning. It's good to see you all. I know the typical form of, of preaching around here is to, uh, is to read the scripture passage and to read it in its entirety and then to offer the sermon after that. It's a great form. No comment on the form. Wonderful form. Uh, if you will allow it, though, this morning, if I can have your permission, uh, I'd like to change that up just a little bit. Um, and uh, for those of you who are worried, like I, I will still read from the Bible. It will still be a sermon based on Holy Scripture. Uh, but it is rather, uh, it's a rather long story. It's a long text. And um, I think it would be more rewarding if we walked through it together and we kind of unfold the story and the sermon at the same time. Do I have your permission? Is that okay? Okay. That's great. Yeah, there is no plan B. Uh, so... <laughs> This is what is uh, on offer for you this morning. If it, if it really does bother you, you're going to want to send an email to tdaniel at covenant.org. <laughs> he really loves to hear from you. He really loves it. So we'll, uh, I, think he, I think he genuinely does. Uh, we will be in Luke 24, 13 through 35. We, we are uh, kind of picking up the story from last week. Um, last week was Easter, if you didn't know. Um, and uh, we're... we're, we're Almost through this Gospel of Luke, if you've been here for a while, you know we've been in the Gospel of Luke, and we've got one more week uh, in Luke. But this story is, is commonly known, to, uh, known as the road to Emmaus. Uh, before we begin, would you pray with me? Holy God, we are here this morning seeking a word that can only come from you. Be gracious to us as, as we listen. And give us the faith that we need to believe whatever good news that you have for us this morning. And we pray this in the name of the risen Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we'll start in, um, in verse 13. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. There's a story about 10 years ago that you might have seen, you might have, uh, you might have read about it, about a man who walked into a DC metro and he pulled out a violin and uh, he began to play. And uh, he played this violin um, for about 45 minutes during the rush hour traffic. Uh, and all, uh, during that time, during that 45 minutes, he played some of the most complicated, some of the most uh, intricate and beautiful pieces of music ever written. And he played these pieces of music for that 45 minutes on his own personal Stradivarius, which I'm told is a very nice violin. Uh, he insisted on using it. And I'm told that it was worth about three and a half million dollars. And during that time that he was playing, about a thousand people walked by as he was playing. And it was observed that only seven people over that time stopped and noticed what he was doing. And, and really for no longer than about three minutes. And during that 45 minutes, he made about 32 bucks. <laughs> Pretty good. So when he finished playing, only one person had actually recognized him. So who was he? His name was Joshua Bell. He is one of the most accomplished violinists in the world. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, in those 45 minutes, he had played these beautiful and intricate pieces of music on a beautiful and intricately made uh, instrument. 
And just three days before this, he had played to a concert hall in Boston, a sold-out concert hall in Boston, where pretty good seats went for about $100 a pop. And yet here he is, a few days later, in a DC metro. Uh, it's better than the subway, but not much. And he's playing background music for people on their way to, on to, on their way to work. And as I mentioned, almost everyone missed it. I hope that you can see where this is going, right? We are all capable. We're all capable of missing something beautiful, something transcendent even, right before our very eyes. And I admit that my first thought when I read this story from Luke's gospel this week, my first thought was that it was like, man, this is kind of a bummer of a story to read uh, a week after Easter, right? We gathered here last week and we celebrated that, that Jesus is alive, that the powers of sin and death could not hold Jesus and that he burst forth forth from the tomb. And here we are this week, a week has gone by, and we have to read a story that reminds us of our capability to miss his presence even now. And if it's possible that his own disciples, people who had uh, enjoyed his physical presence, learned from him, watched him do miracles, if it's possible that they, post-resurrection, can miss his presence, It is possible that we can too. And yet, as we keep reading this story, I think that you will discover, as I did, that this story is really is a story of grace. Luke tells us um, this really interesting wording. He says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Notice that it's it's in the passive voice. And we are clued in here uh, through this sentence that there is something mysterious at work. There's something mysterious beyond their own power, beyond their own sense of perception, beyond their own control. Early on in the story, we realize that they're not as in, as in control. And I, I, I don't really know entirely what to make of this, to be honest with you. But I can, um, I can say that it rings true to my experience. Maybe it rings true to your experience as well. I can relate to these two these two disciples, because there are times that I miss the presence of God in my life all the time, and for reasons that I'm not all that aware of. I can't explain it. Back to the text. And so he says to them, Jesus said, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days. Like, that is one of, that's probably the most ironic question in the Bible, right? And so Jesus asks them, what things? Tell me, what happened? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. And moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. When they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But they did not see him. I love this insight into the disciples' state of mind. They're not just disappointed. They're not just kind of discouraged. They are in a state of grief. 
a state of grief. And out of the depths of his grief, this disciple named Cleopas questions if Jesus is the only person in all of Jerusalem that doesn't know what has just taken place. Of course, as readers, we know Jesus is the only person who kind of has the best idea of what just happened. But this is how grief works, right? When you are in a state of grief, it's hard to see things for what they are. Of course, there would have been people in Jerusalem who are not up to speed on the events of the crucifixion. Jerusalem is a big place. It is a busy place. And the Romans crucified common criminals all the time. So of course, there would have been other people that weren't up to speed on the events of Christ's crucifixion. But when you are uh, in a state of grief, when you are suffering, there's nothing worse than feeling as if the world kind of just goes on and is oblivious to the pain that you are experiencing. So I love this question, even though it's just deeply ironic and kind of funny 2,000 years later. It helps us understand that they are, they are, their hopes are gone. And I imagine that this, this question, the state of grief, resonates with some of you this morning. I know for a fact that some of you are grieving. I know that some of you have received this week bad news from a doctor. Or someone you love has received that news. I know some of you are grieving the loss of loved ones and friends. I wonder if some of you have heard someone speak deeply hurtful words to you this week. Words that won't be taken back. I wonder if some of your children are in trouble. And that is grieving to you. I wonder... If you've made the same mistake again, and that mistake is going to cause pain to your life, it's going to cause pain to the lives of the people that you love. I wonder if you're here this morning and, and you are in a place where you expected God to show up in your life in a big way. So far, it seems like God has other plans. You can identify with these disciples. And one of the things that, that people tell me when I, when I talk to them about their lives, when I talk to them when they're in crisis, people who are suffering, people who are in despair, often tell me that they feel lost. Maybe you've felt that before. That, I think, is right. I think that's probably the best description of grief that I've, that I've heard. We just feel lost. When what we had hoped for uh, turns out not to occur, when our hopes are, are kind of shattered, what we need is a new story to kind of locate ourselves within that gives us some kind of direction. And until we can locate ourselves in a new story, we are just lost. And I think that, I think that this is true for the disciples. One of the, the really interesting details about Emmaus is that uh, historians and scholars and uh, archaeologists can't really agree on where Emmaus exactly is. Nobody really knows what it is, where they were headed, we get this impression that the disciples don't really know where it is, that they're just kind of wandering, they're wandering away from their shattered hopes. They're lost. The story that they had about Jesus came to an end. They have absolutely no use for a crucified God. The Messiah that they had hoped for was supposed to be blessed, was supposed to be favored by God, not abandoned on a cross. So they're telling this to Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? Then he said to them, oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? 
And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. What is Jesus doing here? I think Jesus is giving them a new story. He's giving them a new story that might make sense of the pain that they've experienced over the last weekend, but a new story that gives them something to hope for. It takes them out of this experience of hopelessness that they have had. And the story that Jesus tells, notice, doesn't end with an abandonment of the cross, but it ends with resurrection. God raised Jesus from the dead to defeat the powers of sin and death that crucified him there. And I love this. The story that Jesus tells them, according to Jesus, is the story behind all the other stories in Scripture. It makes sense of the rest. If it appears that Jesus is a little tough on them, I think it's because he knows that in order for this story to be of any help to them, it's a story that has to be believed. Has to be believed. He knows that dismissing or rationalizing their friends' accounts of the empty tomb is only going to leave them in their hopelessness. And so what happens? What happens? Do the disciples come to understand everything after this Bible study and recognize Christ for who he is? No, they don't. They don't. And we don't either. I, think, I actually think this is hilarious. Jesus has just taught what Fleming Rutledge called the most consequential Bible study in all of the world, and nothing. Like, they are still as blind as they have been to Jesus' presence. Back to the story. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of bread. I said at the beginning of this sermon that this is a story about grace. There's a lot to distract us from that. We could spend time wondering why it is and judging these disciples about why they didn't see Jesus for who he really was. But I think that we would miss the story of grace because as we discover, Jesus doesn't abandon them. He doesn't go looking for new disciples who have remained faithful to the very end. He doesn't interrupt them as they are sharing their own version of events. He stays with them. Even even when their own lack of understanding must have deeply offended him, must have deeply saddened him. And when they invite him for a meal, he accepts their invitation. And in a beautiful picture of the gospel, it is he who becomes the host at the table. Sooner or later, you're going to realize that though for a long time you might have thought that you invited Jesus into your life, you will recognize it was Jesus offering the invitation all along. And it's there at this table that they are told, that we are told that their eyes are finally opened. It is at the table seeing Jesus break this bread 
remembering the last time that he had performed that act. And what does Jesus say when he breaks the bread in the upper room? He says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Me, for you. It's this encounter of grace. It's sheer grace that finally opens their eyes to faith. They see him for who he is. And suddenly, the story that he had been telling them finally begins to make sense. It is only through the grace of God that the foolishness of the cross, the absurdity of the cross, and the beauty of the resurrection makes sense. And the story ends, and we are never told by Luke what it was that kept the disciples from recognizing Jesus. It has remained a mystery, the whole story. Maybe it was their grief. Maybe it was their doubt. Maybe it was their... Uh, misplaced hope for who Jesus was and what he was going to do. Maybe it was that Jesus had somehow changed. We don't know. We don't know. But what we do know, what this story in Luke assures us, what it encourages us to believe, is that if it is the presence of the living Christ that we miss standing right in front of us, if it truly is the presence of the living Christ that we miss staring us down, that he stays with us. He stays with us until we are ready to recognize him for who he is. And I, I, I truly can't think of a better picture for grace than that. Pray with me. Holy God, be gracious to us. Be gracious to us. We pray that we might come to see you at work in our own lives. Find us when we are lost. Lost in our grief, lost in our doubt, lost in our own despair. And remind us of your abiding presence with us. Be patient with us when we are slow to recognize and holy God, when our eyes are finally opened, give us the joy and give us the courage to share what we have experienced with those around us. We make this prayer in the name of your son, Jesus the Christ, who lives, and because he lives, we will live also. Amen.